One of the things that I always try to impart, because it was one of the biggest lessons that I was gifted from my mentor, the late great curator, Okrian Wazor, who said that every curator should have a change agenda. And it's very simple. It's two words, change agenda. But if you always keep in mind one element of the whatever industry you're in that you want to change profoundly, and it could be big or small. I always say at Tate, it could be how the food tastes in the canteen, or it could be about the way that stationery looks that we offer in the gift shop, or it could be about the way exhibition graphics look. But that one thing that you think, I have, I have the will and I have the capacity to change that thing, and you put your energy and you put your will behind it, my sense is that you, you stand a very good chance of changing that thing. So I think my focus has always been on having a change agenda of some kind. When I arrived at Tate, it was a very simple one. It was to figure out, well, simple and complex at once. It was how to figure out a way in which one would regard African artists as being on a level footing with their Western counterparts. This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Rafilwem Paganyanem. Powered by I2 Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. This week's guest is British Guinean curatorial powerhouse Oze Bonzu. He's currently the curator of international art at Tate Modern in London, and he has the responsibility and the privilege of not only organising exhibitions, developing the museum's collections, but rather importantly, his purview includes deepening the representation of artists from Africa and the African diaspora. We cover Ozzy's journey from a young art enthusiast to becoming a leading curator of contemporary art. Over the years, he has advised art fairs and private collections internationally, as well as mentored emerging artists through his digital platform, Creative Africa Network. Ozzy has worked as a contributing editor for Freeze magazine and has contributed to a number of exhibition catalogues as well as arts publications. His writing focuses on the relationship between art and issues of migration, race and identity in contemporary society. Ours is a wide-ranging conversation that inspires and illuminates with Ozzy's impressive depth of knowledge and his insight into African art. But knowledge alone is not the end goal for this man, and it is his passion and his drive which shine the brightest in our interview. Let's get into it. Jose Bonzu, thank you so much for your time and agreeing so readily to be part of the Latitudes podcast. It really is such an honor to speak to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always so interesting and perhaps difficult to decide where to start with someone who is so accomplished 
and whose work gives you career envy, even though we're not even in the same field. <laughs> Such a bizarre thing, right? Have you ever experienced that, Jose? I think what I'm often inspired by is actually constantly looking to my left and right and remind, being reminded that I'm not alone. So when I look at people like yourself who are doing great things and people in the kind of cultural industries who are making change happen, I'm inspired by it. And I think I came into an industry at a time where there were very few people of colour doing what I do now. So it's always really heartening and inspiring to see the ways in which people are now taking up space in a really meaningful way, even in a way that contrasts with how things were 10 years ago. And speaking of that, coming into the industry, Let's start at the beginning. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Can you talk to me about your own interest in the arts and how that began and essentially how that primed you for the scope of your ambition and aspirations and set you on that path to reading for your master's in history of art, as well as getting that uh, BA in curatorial studies? Yeah, so education played a really formative role, but I actually grew up in a very small town where there were few uh, museums and art galleries. So I always aspired in a way to um, enter the cultural industries without a huge amount of knowledge about what that would entail as a career path. Yeah. Um, it was very common in the school that I went to go on and be a doctor or a teacher or someone working in a kind of traditional profession. And certainly coming from a uh, a West African family, there was an expectation perhaps <laughs> to fulfill a more conventional career route. Yeah. And it wasn't until I arrived in London, as you mentioned, to study my BA at Central St. Martin's College of Art, which has always been viewed as somewhat of a mecca in the creative industries for people typically studying things like fashion, theatre, design, etc. And there was a new programme that had opened up dedicated to curatorial studies specifically. So I found myself taking on a degree that would allow me then to, you could say, gain the necessary tools to enter the profession so it made it much more viable for me because I could see the pathway through my education whereas I think a lot of people aren't even aware that it's an option to enter the museum sector or they don't necessarily know anyone who's in that field so I was really fortunate and then by the time I'd arrived in London and it was at the kind of time a slightly dubious time in the art world where many people would undertake um, unpaid internships so I did so many things for free (laughs) Um, all my first exhibitions were pretty much very much kind of guerrilla exhibitions that would take place in and around London without much guidance and I'd work with a lot of young and -and up-and-coming artists And then by the time I went on to study my master's, I really knew that I wanted to strengthen my art historical knowledge and kind of deepen my area of research. What tends to happen when you do um, an undergrad course in art history or curatorial studies is you generalize and then on your master's you specialize. And if you go on to do a PhD, you may even specialize further. So by that time is when I seriously started looking at contemporary African art. And that's because my father being Ghanaian was always really encouraging that I connect my cultural roots to what I did as a profession. But at the time when I was studying, there were very few courses actually offering African art. They were studying, people were studying the Renaissance. They were looking at 19th century French art. Almost every other category of art history was available besides African art. So I think I was fortunate to arrive at UCL at a time when there was a course specialising. It's a course that's still ongoing, actually. It's titled Race and Place, and it looks specifically at the sort of histories of race as it relates to uh, forms of representation, both in South African photography and French 19th century culture. And I ended up taking on that degree at that 
and upon graduating that master's program, I felt like I was then ready to enter the world. So if that's a kind of point of inspiration or encouragement for any of your listeners, I would just say that education can be a really useful tool, but also taking on as many opportunities as you can while you're studying to seek out the relevant path, that everything is interesting, particularly when you're a time in your career where you're still figuring out, I always say the process of elimination, of figuring out what you don't want to do first in order to get to that thing that inspires you can be really key. I like that a lot because in today's culture, there is that rush or that expectation to have reached huge milestones at a very early age, money and fame being probably the biggest among them. And that process of elimination, once you settle into that idea, allows you to slow down, to breathe a little bit and give yourself space to experience things and and to grow skills that that are incidental to what it is that you're interested in. But Jose, you said something so lovely, and that is the fact that you did so much of these guerrilla exhibitions and you mentioned those unpaid internships. And I wonder how that experience of essentially doing your own thing and teaching yourself how to curate and put on exhibitions and, I guess, network with artists was able to help you build your own thinking beyond the established canon and the germ that it's left in the work that you currently do. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think one of the key kind of points of entry for me was discovering that particularly at the beginning of the 1990s, there was a sort of generation of um, African and African diaspora scholars um, writers, thinkers who are engaged in these questions of post-colonial theory and looking at those those uh, theoretical frameworks in relation to art. Um, and they would include individuals like Okwian Ways or Salah Hassan, so many that have Simon and Jemi, yeah. who I think made a very meaningful contribution to this kind of expanded field of art history at a time when people hadn't really began to recognise contemporary African art as a kind of historical category. Yes. It's fascinating in a way because even in terms of modern African art, I think historically it was the area of um, engagement and investment for many Africanists who were studying traditional anthropology and ethnographic courses, Mm. who would then apply that same knowledge and research to modern African art, which doesn't seem to fit all that well, because you're thinking about an entirely separate category of visual production, right? An entirely different way of thinking about the role of the artist. So I think what happened in the early 1990s is there was a kind of shift in thinking towards a much more expensive idea of what art history could be, particularly when it was written by Africans for Africans. And I think that's when I started to become inspired by the language around contemporary African art. And I would say that's when the germ was planted, partly because I realised that there was a direct relationship between the kind of the theoretical ideas of the politics of liberation, the politics of, you could say, community, and how that then filtered into the work that artists were doing and the work that writers, such as the ones that I mentioned earlier, were engaged with. So I think what seemed to me to be quite urgent at that time is recognizing this historical opportunity to enter a field that was very much still burgeoning because you could argue that there still aren't enough undergrad courses teaching African art. There still still aren't enough museums internationally acknowledging many of these artists and these practices. But I think that actually we've seen a huge shift in the last 
20 or more years towards equity and more visibility when it comes to a global narrative of art. And the point that I'm always making is that it's not necessarily that African artists endeavour to be recognised by Western institutions or that the end goal is to be stamped by a museum. So I think there's a lot to be said about looking at that generation of the 1990s and being inspired by that period, but also thinking about how we apply that to the decade that we're in now, a new century, a new time in which there will be inevitably new challenges around how we frame and discuss contemporary art. Mm, absolutely. My, my next question would have been about Crane, and we will get there shortly, but what you've said about this transnational dialogue and a generational dialogue, and I guess the work of or the importance of African artists and artists in the diaspora of creating and contributing towards. Yeah. Could you talk to me about whether or not the promise has borne any fruit, but the promise of technology to allow that free flow of information, that intellectual commons, that, by the way, which is free and should be equitable, but essentially the sharing of ideas and how technology has enabled this, but perhaps how it can do better or how we can influence technology to do better as opposed to being solely influenced by it. Yeah. I think that there's something very profound about the way that artists are using technology now to think about a wider commitment to their audience um, and one that is sparked not only by the idea of a physical interaction with an artwork, but the idea that you can build a virtual community, you can seek out an audience through technology, but you can also start to think, of course, about alternative ways of materialising your artwork. I think I'm slightly sceptical sometimes of the shift towards a non-physical art world in a sense we saw a lot of that during the pandemic where there was a desire perhaps to think more about the exchange value of art in a new way but I'm much more interested in maybe more of a kind of gift economy in which we think about the value of let's say forms of exchange forms of you could say reciprocity that aren't necessarily based on uh, the art market but are based on artists sharing community sharing knowledge sharing values and I think this is where we see things shifting I I think one of the things that's been really exciting about the work that we've been doing at Tate over the last several years is trying to figure out where African artists fit within our online ecosystem as well as within the physical space of the museum. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm most proud of, for instance, is that we have a series of online videos that you can watch where you get in-depth insight into an artist's practice, into their career, what makes them tick, how they built their careers as artists, what is it that compels them to do what they do. And I think that kind of those ways of using the digital sphere is really interesting. Platforms like this can also be incredibly instructive. But I would say that it's also really important that people don't become swallowed up by that, right? That they remember that on the other side of all of these connections that we generate through social media, there are real people waiting to have real conversations. And I think that's what I'm particularly interested in at the moment is thinking about how one bridges that gap, particularly when we think about the disparity in terms of access, some of the physical barriers, when we think of particularly about how we better represent artists from Africa and its global diaspora, how do we draw those impossible connections that have been created by success of generations of migration, departure, you could say the complexity of how we live now in a globalised world. So I think the digital era has brought in a way a kind of closing of those gaps in a way, but I think that there's still so much more that could be done 
by various platforms to think about how we close those gaps. And I think when I set up Crane Creative African Network five years ago now, I was thinking about the possibility of how artists could share knowledge through informal online kind of dialogues and connections. And some of the early artists that we were able to work with, like Ibrahim Mahema, who's gone on to build an extraordinary foundation in, in Tamale, Ghana, mm. speak to this idea that, again, it is about thinking about connectivity beyond the art object, about one's commitment to a community that is ultimately interested in art, but not as an end in itself, right? Mm -hmm. Art as a kind of means to have conversations around questions of civic engagement, questions of social responsibility, questions related to, you could say, equity or political solidarity. All of those things can be made possible through art, right? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we forget that when we see that the art market and the art world can be so driven you could say by the commodification of art what it means to think about an art world that is perhaps differently structured so that was my aim when I set up Crane and then of course I joined one of the largest museums in the world Tate Modern which then reoriented my path towards a more traditional institutional structure yeah. and now I'm trying to figure out how does one infuse those same ideas into a context that is much more you could say conventional in terms of how it operates and that's when I know a world in common as an exhibition was born out of that thinking of how could Tate perhaps operate slightly differently. Yeah uh, I almost said talk about a conundrum but it's not really as you're saying you're synthesizing the ideas and the purpose of Crane and bringing that into your work at Tate Modern and of course for those that are listening Crane being the Creative African Network which you founded in 2015 in Ghana. You were announced as um, rather your role at Tate Modern was announced in September of 2019 if I remember correctly and I wonder for you what that was like to be on the cusp of what you've just mentioned, one of the world's most recognizable modern art museums. And you're on the precipice. This amazing announcement has been made that you are the curator of international art at Tate Modern. And yet at that point, none of us had a clue that in about six or seven months' time, we would be sheltering in place and essentially just living our lives at the vagary of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and wondering what in the world would happen to us. We all migrated as best as we could online. But can yeah. you talk us through what was going on for you personally and uh, perhaps on a professional level as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. And of course, I think over the last few months and even years now, conversations shifted away from the pandemic. But I think we're all still dealing, actually, with Absolutely. the repercussions of the pandemic in ways big and small. Um, and one of the things that uh, really struck me at that time was this sense of, uh, of intense isolation, naturally, mm. that at once cultivated a sense of you could say fear, as it did in so many of us, but also maybe this sense to really double down on one's commitments, one's commitments to a particular project, to a particular area of research, to a particular community, whatever it might be. I think it gave us all a chance to seek clarity in our lives. Mm. And for me, that clarification kind of the, the resulting form was African Art Now, which is a book uh, that I published with through um, 
Tate Publishing and uh, Hashit Ilex last year, I believe. And that book was a kind of constellation of 50 artists, 50 leading contemporary African artists who is defining the field as we know it. And it's uh, that book was born out of a desire to see more critical writing, more critical engagement with artists who are making work in the here and now, yeah. rather than what I te find tends to, tends to happen in the art world, which is that artists will get a review written about their show, which engages with that one exhibition. And then maybe it's two or three years before their work is written about in a critical way. And I would say there is fewer and fewer opportunities for art criticism in the art world today because of the uh, lack of platforms, you could say, that proliferate um, around art, critical art uh, um, writing. But what I, what I wanted to try to do is open up a kind of gateway for these 50 artists to be introduced to new audiences. Yeah. So rather than just being known to those in the know in the contemporary art world, they would be, someone could walk into a bookstore, pick up the book, and maybe they would be studying, I imagined, for their A-levels, which I don't know what the South African equivalent would be, but <laughs> the kind of degree that you take yeah. before you go on to university. But yeah. that idea that at a formative stage, what was the book that I would have loved to have picked up at the age of 15, 16, and thought, this is possible. So I actually didn't write the book with a professional audience in mind. Yeah. The foreword was written by, it's an interview with a rugby player, Maru Otoje, who is a kind of cultural figure here in the UK, one of the leading sportsmen. And that was deliberate. It was to bring in another voice, again, another perspective that may not necessarily be one that art, art professionals would associate with the with African art. Mm -hmm. So it was about trying to broaden the lens. And I think that was one outcome. And then the other outcome of the pandemic, in my experience, was realising that we as an institution had to think much more radically about how we addressed questions of, regarding climate change. I think institutions that historically wanted to deal with these questions thematically mm -hmm. by acquiring more work that addressed the climate crisis without thinking about its own commitment. And it's almost a, a twin issue alongside issues around diversity and inclusivity that institutions are so quick to want to correct this by making declarative statements or showing an artist of colour, for instance, but not looking internally, not looking yeah. at its internal processes and how we work. So I think having joined Tate at a critical moment, I was able to intercept some of those questions. And really the result of, of that thinking is a world in common. So it's an exhibition that is reflective, I think, uh, in part of our commitment to climate emergency. It includes 36 artists from across Africa and its diaspora, but many of the prints in the exhibition were printed in the UK. So it's a show with a very low carbon footprint relative, relative to other exhibitions of a similar scale. But just to say, I know we'll move on to that, but just what I'm proud of out of that period is that there was a huge amount of frustration and I think anguish associated with the pandemic for so many, and including myself. But what I've constantly tried to do throughout my career is address the obstacles by imagining other possible worlds. And that's all I'm ever interested in doing through my work in the art world is maybe opening up space for others to dream, others to make their own realities and to recognise that we're, when we're doing this work as curators in public institutions, we're only ever custodians of artworks that will go on and touch successive generations. So mm -hmm. you're thinking of yourself as a kind of historical intermediary in a way that's bridging a gap. And that's the sense of purpose that I gained during the pandemic. The, the work I was taking on was so much bigger than my own role or Tate as an institution. It was about a, a sense of collective responsibility, I think. We continue our conversation after the short break. Black Brick is a growing network of apartment hotels with culture at their core. 
A key focus of the group is its artist collective, where artists are invited to bring each apartment and building to life. Black Brick is currently working on a pipeline of 30 locations within South Africa with a vision to create a global network of urban villages where people can live and work freely across cities. To book your stay, visit blackbrickclub.com. In the interviews of yours that I've read and watched or listened to, there seems to be embedded in your approach to curation such a generosity of spirit that you are not only creating legacies and helping artists further reach more people, but the sense that you're also there to work with the artist and as far as possible, get as close to realizing those ambitions as well. So I was really struck by that. And I think it's just such a beautiful, uh, a fantastic approach to work and to art. Speaking, of course, of Tate Modern, when a visitor who goes to London for the very first time and you grab a guidebook or go online, the write-up always reads something like this. Tate Modern is the jewel and the crown of modern art galleries in London holds the nation's collection of modern art from the 1900s to the present day. With 5.7 million visitors, it is in the top 10 most visited museums and galleries in the world. And then, of course, those write-ups will go on to list the Picassos or the Dalis or Rothkos that are housed at the Tate. But could you just briefly, we might be going back a little bit, but could you Give me your own take on the legacy and the importance of Tate Modern, but at the same time allowing us insight into the gravity and the value of your role, of your work as Tate Modern's curator of international art. And as you said, you're responsible for organizing exhibitions, developing the museum's collection, but of course, once again, the idea of how those collections are brought about and how the representation of artists from Africa and the diaspora actually happen. The two things sitting side by side, Tate's history and legacy, and of course, its initial and fundamental benefactor, and where we are today. Do we need to, or has there been a need to, number one, reconcile the two things in order to move forward? Or is it simply enough to understand and acknowledge just where we're from and use that as a point of departure? I think that this idea of reconciliation is an important one, particularly as it relates to a wider issue around cultural restitution that's being had across the museum sector as a whole. Mm -hmm. To give a little bit of context about Tate's own collection, uh, Tate Modern at least houses the international collection from 1900 to the present, an incredibly kind of critical period, you could say, in the genesis of radical thoughts and forms and expressions in the history of art, unlike any other in the sense that it creates, I think, a sort of critical context for how we understand art in the present when we look at modern and contemporary art specifically. And what Tate has achieved since its opening in the year 2000 as a kind of millennial institution, as a millennium project, is a sense of thinking um, very internationally from London, but not thinking of London as its only centre of gravity. So Mm -hmm. when Tate Modern was founded, there was a very important exhibition called Century City that brought together a kind of multitude of international cities from the post-war era to the present, 
all of which had demonstrated different examples of transnational ways of building cosmopolitan forms of, you could say, artistic community. So it looked at Lagos in the 1960s, for instance, a very important time for independence, where artists were making very radical forms of artwork that were directly opposed, you could say, to kind of colonial methodologies or ways of thinking about art. And I think that, for me, is really part of Tate's legacy as well. It's not only built into the kind of grandeur, historical grandeur of Tate as a project, you could say, a a very 19th century project founded on a more traditional idea of the museum, Mm -hmm. but what a museum can be as a space of incubation, as a laboratory, as a school, as a place that can breed new forms of knowledge. And I think that's where my interest lays, really, not in the kind of object-oriented approach to museums, but museums as a kind of point of departure for new types of conversation and new types of engagement. So I think that's really a huge part of Tate Modern's legacy is thinking about art in the round and thinking about art in a very expensive way. So I think that the process of reconciliation that you speak of is critical. I think one of the areas that's been of interest to me, and I use an example of of the first acquisition I was able to um, bring into the collection when I joined Tate was in DDDK's A History of a City in a Box. And this is a work composed of over 200 box files from Independence House in Nigeria, mm. a, a civic monument gifted by the British to the Nigerian government on the eve of independence. And by replicating these, the, the kind of cartography of a city through these administrative box files that no longer have a use, because of course, many of those structures of colonial administration are now no longer in use. Yeah. The artist is referring referring to the history of the city in these box files that are made up of postcards, uh, uh, newspaper uh, clippings, images that reveal how Nigeria looked during the the period of of political transition to independence. And you get a very extremely, I think, insightful view into the complex intersection, you could say, of these issues around independence and what it meant, particularly in that period of Nigeria's nation building, to cultivate a a new image of, of what independence might look like, but also how Britain's own history is implicated, is entangled within that within that story. So I think when I first started to acquire works at Tate, my central question was, we can't think about this in an extractivist way. It's not interesting for Tate to think about acquiring works merely to enrich the collection or to enrich art historical knowledge um, in the UK or in Europe, mm-hmm. but to think about how African artists can dislodge and reactivate important dialogues around what we don't know about these histories associated to art and visual culture that are so much more important in a way than the volume of works that we're able to acquire. It's about bringing in artworks that really force open critical questions. So what DK's History of a City in a Box kind of exemplifies is the complex nature, you could say, of how artists think about the archive as a way of activating the ghosts of the past and to bring forward these complicated historical legacies. Without artists, we wouldn't necessarily have access to these histories. And I think that's one thing that I constantly want to kind of surface through my work. And I would say it's one way of, you could say, negating a very, I think, a, a, a challenging relationship, you could say, between the idea of the museum and the idea of the encyclopedic you could say museum as a place of knowledge that's cultivated purely for its own sake. Yeah. And that's static as well, right? And doesn't speak to contemporary society. I love that phrase, activating <laughs> the ghosts of the past. And what struck me, and I absolutely loved just reading through the Tate's reading through the Tate's website, 
And there's a segment on how to master the art of slow looking. Mm. And slow looking in a time when it feels as though we are at the apex of just the vagaries, once again, of the attention economy. So important, so very necessary. And how do you do that for yourself as a curator, as a writer, as an art historian, where you are no doubt being pushed and pulled, your own attention for professional reasons is being called on constantly, I imagine. And from a very practical perspective, what does your job look like and entail? And how do you keep all these balls in the air so that you are able to put on these exhibitions that that we've mentioned, right? And write the books that, that we've also mentioned as well. One of the things that I always try to impart, because it was one of the biggest lessons that I was gifted from my mentor, a brilliant, uh, the late great curator, Okrian Wazor, who said that every curator should have a change agenda And it's very simple. It's two words, change agenda. Mm -hmm. But if you always keep in mind one element of the whatever industry you're in that you want to change profoundly, and it could be big or small. I always say at Tate, it could be how the food tastes in the canteen, (laughs) or it could be about the way that stationery looks that we offer in the gift shop, or it could be about the way exhibition graphics look. But that one thing that you think, "I I have the will and I have the capacity to change that thing, and you put your energy and you put your will behind it, mm-hmm. my sense is that you, you stand a very good chance of changing that thing. So I think my focus has always been on having a change agenda of some kind. When I arrived at Tate, it was a very simple one. It was to figure out, well, simple and complex at once. It was how to figure out a way in which w- one would regard African artists as being on a level footing with their Western counterparts, not because that point needed to be made necessarily in a continental context, but that in a European museum like Tate, where people had such a profound acknowledgement, you could say, of names like the ones that you mentioned earlier, Francis Bacon, Pablo Picasso, that Mm -hmm. they were expecting to see when they entered the museum. What would it mean for one to discover an Ernest Mancoba or uh, David Kulwani and have the same reverence to realise that these artists deserve that level of recognition and importance. We know, many of us on the continent will know that these artists have had profound impact within their own communities, but their their recognition hasn't always been received globally. So my critical question at Tate is to try, try and figure out how to create an international platform for the discussion of African and African diasporic practices so that they're no longer looked upon as being part of a marginal art history, but one that is central to a kind of global understanding of art and one that is entangled with legacies of abstraction, minimalism, conceptual art, pop art, whatever it may be, because unfortunately those given categories are still what we're dealing with quite often. Um, and often I find myself, particularly with a show like A World in common contemporary African photography, having to remind people the reason the show encompasses so much, the reason it takes on so many different facets of photographic expression, it's not documentary, it's not conceptual, it's not purely about uh, representation, but, it, but it's also not about abstraction. There is, I think, a way in which the diversity of artistic expression in the continent on the continent is limitless, and Tate has to find a way to celebrate and recognise that. All institutions who are seriously interested have to engage with the multiplicity of contemporary African production. So that's what I'm trying to foreground. It's less about my own 
curatorial interest being sure. overdetermined, you could say. And you find many art historians that work in that way, or they'll work for five years on one artist. I'm less so interested in that, maybe further down the line in my career. At this point, I'm committed to opening as many doors for as many artists as possible and doing it, like you said, in a way that maybe does demonstrate generosity, but there is also a certain urgency because of the way that these practices have been ignored and overlooked historically, right? We continue our conversation after the short break. Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Let's talk more about a world in common. Actually, as I was prepping for our conversation, I came across a clip of an African-American comedian who was joking about the fact that for the longest time, Africans were, and I guess natives of non-European countries, if you can say that, they were the only people that were photographed in the National Geographic. Of course, he used the N-word, but he said people and animals and people and <laughs> it's it's such an interesting phenomenon how our relationship, obviously, with photography has grown far beyond those anthropologists looking at us in our uh, native environment sort of scenario. I am generalizing quite a bit by utilizing that, but I thought it was such an interesting and quite funny point of departure. But exactly that I watched of you talking about photography and photographers' relationships to their art is the fact that so many have moved beyond a fascination with technology and what it can do for that craft. And some have gone back to traditional methods of photography and become more creative with it. But essentially understanding that they are exploring their work in a depth and a sort of adding textures and layers that are unexpected, but that do so much, as you say, to expand and to play on and enhance our understanding of the multiplicity of voices of African artists. Just talk to me about what it is particularly for you that photography does and can do for the understanding of that multiplicity of voices, of identities, and of experiences of Africans. Yeah. What I think fascinates me about the history of photography on the continent, as you outlined there, is this idea that it's always been associated with this idea of objectivity and scientific truth. Mm. And at least throughout the, 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 the best part of the 19th century, the utilisation of photography as a scientific medium was there specifically to typecast, stereotype and racialize African bodies. And what it did is reduced African bodies to something less than human. And also it in, enriched the European colonial project as one that was about creating a distance, you could say, between the other. And I would say that 
form of photographic practice was one that I was always aware of, almost recoiled from engaging with art mm. historically. I felt like there were more joyous ways of looking at African bodies. I wanted to think about how Africans saw themselves and how Black people saw themselves rather than through a Western lens. But actually, it's only by engaging with those forms of practice that you you learn about the kind of racist underbelly of photography. Yeah. But what you also find when you look at the history of photography on the continent is concurrent or in parallel with that history of scientific or ethnographic photography, you had the rise of studio portraiture as early as the 1840s Absolutely. in many coastal towns where uh, photographers are beginning to set up some of the first photo studios that serve upper middle class and upper class families, black families. And of course, as, this, as, the, as the 19th century unfolds, particularly in a context like South Africa or the 20th century, rather, we see a radical transformation, you could say, of how people are given access to such spaces and how people's humanity is almost stripped away. We almost see a kind of reversal of what we see in maybe certain West African countries. It's, it's just fascinating when you look at how photography can demonstrate a social reality. So I think just beginning at that point of what photography can do, what I was interested in with this exhibition is thinking about how contemporary African photographers and photography now encompasses so much more than you could say an interest in the here and now. It's almost about a kind of a, 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 an exercise in time travel yeah. where artists are accessing the archive. They are accessing historical forms of knowledge, forms of representation that weren't necessarily known to us throughout the best part of the 20th century. I always use the example of Sentu Mofaking's Black Photo Album in which in 1998, Sentu Mofaking, a famed South African photographer, who spent the best part of his career documenting uh, the apartheid and, and thinking very critically about how to represent Black communities during that period of historical transformation. What he did, I think, very powerfully is encountered uh, an archive, much of which was stored under beds, um, in closets yeah. um, of Black families at the turn of the century, um, all of whom are wearing traditional Victorian garb and were many of whom were Christians who were converted, you could say, at a time when that was a normal standard, you could say, for Black middle-class and upper-class families. And that the demonstration of that portfolio is what inspired A World in Common as an exhibition, this idea that an artist in the 1990s could look back at this historical archive and bring an entirely different meaning to it, an entirely different sense of history, of place, of time. And what Santomorphic King demonstrates in the Black Photo Album is that these photographs are demonstrations of Black communities before the imposition of apartheid, but they're also very complex representations of what it means to be seen and what photography can do in a way to reorient the gaze. So he's asking questions throughout that um, slide presentation. It's a series of slides running with questions um, about the kind of colonial project of photography. That's where I began with A World in Common is thinking about the legacy of those projects. But more specifically, there was this idea that the archive and you could say this kind of the the abundance of images that we're now traveling through and you use Instagram earlier and slow looking as an example yeah. how do we contend with this overwhelming sense of um, everything everywhere all at once and this <laughs> sea of images that we're constantly wading through I think this is a huge part of the ways in which photographers are thinking now about kind of temporality in a very different way and almost a different way of thinking about how we engage with photographic image so I should say that the exhibition was inspired by uh, Ashila Mbembe's writing yeah. the Cameroonian philosopher based in South Africa, who writes about this need to think of a world in common as thinking a world from Africa, and to think about indigenous forms of knowledge and spirituality as being central to the way that we may address 
climate, for instance, where often we think that the answers are in technology or they're in, but maybe they're in different forms of knowledge that have been historically overlooked or indeed suppressed by Western forms of subjugation, domination, etc. Specifically, when we look at things like the import of certain religious cultures and values at the beginning of the 19th century or the beginning of the end of of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. That for me was a really exciting question to take up. And what the exhibition does is it takes you through three distinct chapters, identity and tradition, counter histories and imagined futures, all of which are engaging with questions around urbanity, spirituality, forms of cultural heritage that are about history, but at seen through the lens of the present. And that's what a world in common kind of does, is it invites you into this vista of, you could say, an expanded vision of how African photographers are refashioning the historical and present day representation of the continent and its histories. And it's a very ambitious undertaking, but one in which I'm not saying there is any right or wrong way to engage with these works or to frame them. What I was interested in is centering the artist's voice at every stage. So in every room, the artist's voice is present in every context. When we're looking at a question like religion and spirituality, it's less about a kind of, you could say, a sort of a totalizing view of saying, this is the way in which religion can be framed or looked at. It's saying, this is how a select group of artists engage with ritual, and this is their own way of entering into a a, a spiritual connection with their ancestry. And that might look very different for a multitude of artists. And I think that's what I wanted to contend with. So many of the major exhibitions of contemporary African photography throughout the 80s and 90s were about this kind of, you could say, a a more kind of totalizing vision of African um, life and politics that centered either around the decade of independence Mm -hmm. or around, as you mentioned earlier, this 19th century construction, you could say, of the photographic archive in relation to racial difference or coloniality. And I was interested in a way, doing away with those structures to think about how artists kind of time travel and how they experiment with multiple ways of representing the continent and its history. So it was a challenge, but one that I'm very proud to have worked on because I think Achille Mbembe's thinking in so many ways and people like Felwyn Saleh, Suleiman Beshi and DI, they reorient the way that that I think artists are working now. They allow us to think differently beyond these kind of more conventional art historical frameworks, maybe looking at a more expanded way of thinking. Yeah. And of course, we've had the benefit of Ashil Mbembe's social commentary, political commentary, as you mentioned, with South Africa being his home now. So, yeah, we've really benefited from that as well. When you talk about this totalizing of ideas around, let's say, spirituality or religion, immediately I thought of growing up in the 90s, any of these magazine covers or write-ups of Alec Wick the new Naomi Campbell or the new Serena Williams. But it was always a, it couldn't just be another amazing superstar, pop star artist. They had to replace the only other one who was on top currently in whatever career they might be. And I love the idea that, in fact, there is so much space and there's so much need for, once again, that multiplicity of viewpoints of understandings. And there's no fundamental conclusion it's an ongoing conversation uh, with audiences and between artists. 
That's really beautiful. And I think that point you make about being the only one or about there being an individual black figure or cultural icon replacing another is something that we've seen just as often in the art world, let's say in a, specifically in a, a European and an American context. Sure. One of the things that's been very inspiring in A World in Common is none of those artists were known to our audience, Tate Modern, before the exhibition. But my hope is that in 10 years time, each of them would be ripe for a museum retrospective and maybe shown at a different venue around the world but it's a, it's an opening and I think all I hoped for with this exhibition is to demonstrate the kind of again a multiplicity of positions and perspectives but also to really give space to artists who are also still finding their voices in a way mm -hmm. and who haven't yet made their best work and I think one of the things that always excites me as a curator is being with an artist along that journey it's very easy to celebrate an artist once they've made 40 years worth of work that's yes. already out there in the world and established that's to me not so much of a challenge the yeah. challenge is identifying um potential identifying vision early on and then figuring out how you as a curator can help cultivate in that artist more visibility or a sense of them pushing their vision further or challenging them in certain ways but to really be there as a kind of fellow traveler along that journey and i think with the world in common i'm proud to say that all of those artists are now artists that i'll support probably on a lifelong basis because of um my commitment to their practice and i hope their commitment to, to one another's practice. That's something that's been very um, transparent. When you look at a figure like Ida Mulene, who set up Addis Photo Fest several years ago, she is an artist who's championed young Black photographers across the continent. And I think figures like Ida will change the geography of the art world in the next 10 years as a result of their advocacy and vision. So I think we, we there's much more to come. Very quickly, going back to African art now, and we've spoken about your approach to it, which is one of inclusivity and not necessarily for people already in the art world. And I'm very curious about what it was that you were looking for and seeking to create in terms of serious writing about African art and artists. What was it that you wanted to see on those pages when you collected those 50 pioneers of African art? I think that I was looking for, so my measure of any influential artist has always been less about what they achieve in their lifetime and more about the impact that they may have on successive generations. Ironically, you can't measure that with contemporary artists per se because they're living, they're among their peers. <laughs> but one of the things that I started to realise in looking at the book, even over a 10-year period in which many of these artists have gained some critical recognition and acclaim and visibility, some less so than others, but I was fascinated by the fact that what does it mean to cultivate a unique voice in a space that you could say is overpopulated, you could say to yeah. a degree, that nowadays there is a constant every night time you turn around there is a new art exhibition or biennale or art festival whatever mm -hmm. it might be but who are those artists that make you stop in your tracks and think I've not seen a work that looks like that anywhere else mm -hmm. and I think there are a few artists in the exhibition that either through technical innovation through their commitment to a particular political or social engagement or agenda I think of the South African artist like Sabello Melengeni who's mm -hmm. looked at LGBTQ communities in the South African countryside who would have thought to document those communities and I think 
I'm sure other generations will, but it's really Sabello's advocacy and support for that community that's brought a light to it. That to me is a pioneering vision. And then you take an artist like Njadeka Kanyili Crosby, an artist who uses photo transfer as well as painting to create images of everyday black life in which her own womanhood is central and her own interracial marriage, her own family ties are seen as being as important as any historical event. And she gives a kind of huge scale and volume to the everyday, to domesticity, to women's labour. That inspires a whole generation of other artists to, to think in similar ways about how they can make the mundane extraordinary. So that was really the measure. It was thinking about the singularity of a voice, but also thinking about the ways in which artists, in so many instances, um, are championing different forms of expression that force us to reorient what we, how we define art in critical ways, what is seen as being valuable in terms of our own ethics, our own uh, systems of a value, of evaluation, one could say. So I think my ongoing pursuit is to figure out how to find nuance and you could say to constantly cultivate a different language around how we frame these artistic practices so we get to a point where I don't have to write books like African art now. My hope is actually that we'll be much more specific in the terms that we use in the future. I think there is so much research that needs to be undertaken. The work that I'm doing at Tate is merely a kind of, it's a sort of, it's one example, it's one form you could yeah. say of curatorial practice, but I'm always encouraging of young curators to set up their own spaces, to build their own artistic communities, to create online platforms, Forms. It doesn't really matter the medium, mm -hmm. so long as you're clear on the message and, and how you want to deliver it. So I think that what I'm trying to figure out ultimately at Tate Modern is how we become much more, I think, conscious of the challenges that the museum sector faces as a whole. But I think more specifically, how do we become a more inclusive institution for those perspectives that challenge our own histories, our own centrality within the narrative, you could say that is not always is not always equipped, you could say, to adjust itself or to mm. reflect because of the fast pace at which things move. Mm. So I think what you said earlier about slow looking is probably the answer for so many of us, is slowing down, is reflecting on our place in the world. And I think so much of what makes a curatorial practice viable is that practice of slowing down and thinking deeply. And I think it's something that I remain committed to, but I think it's, a, it's almost an act of resistance in the world that we live in. <laughs> An act of resistance. I absolutely love the, love that. Since we are all activists and <laughs> somehow involved in social impact work these days, Jose, my final question to you is: You have had and created for yourself such an incredibly inspiring and admirable and envy-inducing but really impactful career and illustrious, if I may use that word. And there are many caps, there are many titles that you have donned over the years. And of course, being the curator of international art at Tate Modern is no small thing. And I wondered what you know for sure about accolades and titles and recognition from your peers and receiving recognition from within your industry. And of course, I have stolen that question from Oprah Winfrey, which is to ask, mm. what do you know for sure? But in this instance, what do you know for sure about 
getting recognition and accolades from your peers as well as from within your industry? I think what I know for sure, and that's a very good way of framing it, is that unless you have a very strong personal foundation and you've cultivated meaningful relationships in your life, be they family, friends, chosen community, none of those accolades or professional achievements will feel worthwhile. So I think one of the things that I'm trying to practice constantly is gratitude, which I think we all are on a journey to, towards towards figuring out how we make gratitude or, or, or a recognition of our, of our of our gifts, of the things that we may take for granted as being part of our daily, you could say our daily reality. Yeah. I think one of the things that I'm also coming to realize is that artists are almost always just wanting to be heard, wanting to be seen, wanting to be acknowledged and, and, and made visible. And I think that one of the things that's helpful if you're in a position such as mine, where you're often a bridge builder, you're creating opportunities, is to constantly humble yourself and remind yourself in a way that this work is not possible without artists. Yeah. They are at the centre of so much of what we do. And that's not to give artists overdue importance. Actually, it's just to state a fact, which is that the art world is entirely predicated on artistic labour in the first instance. So if you value that as chief among anything, if you value that as being the centre of why the work is meaningful, it allows you to perhaps humble yourself and remind yourself that you're merely a kind of a sort of caretaker or someone who is guiding these works or these artists through a certain process. So I think those are the things that I know for sure, which is that if you build bridges, if you advocate, if you create opportunities for others, it will only enrich and engender a sense of possibility along your own journey. But the, as you pursue your professional path and as you gain accolades and achievements, you've got to constantly come back to wherever you, what, wh whichever place you regard to be home with your friends, your family, your community, and remembering that those are the people who really value you irrespective of your professional achievements. And that's why, in fact, you have to hold on tight to those individuals because I think they make life worthwhile. Jose, thank you so much for such a beautiful conversation. I really do appreciate your time. I had such fun. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafilwe Mpakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Media. And a big thank you to the Latitudes team.